Okay, let's go on to Dr. Safa's case. Sure. So this is a 40-year-old woman presented in 2001 with right upper quadrant pain. At that time, she had a CT scan of the abdomen. Pelvis showed a mass in the gastric area. She did undergo upper endoscopy, showed a large mass in the stomach. Because of bleeding, she was taken to surgery, and she was found to have a 14-centimeter mass. This was resected, and pathology showed just tumor positive for secret. There was necrosis in the tumor and only very few rare mitoses, and CHI-67 was very minimal. All margins were negative at that time. The patient was observed, and she had serial CT scans, and then in July of 2006, she started to have uh, right upper quadrant pain. She underwent CT scan of the abdomen, we show two liver lesions, one in the superior segment of lateral segment of the left lobe measuring 2.1 by 1.7 centimeter, and a larger lesion was in the anterior right lobe measuring 3.4 by 4 centimeter. So, Dr. Eisenberg, how would you be thinking through, and how often do you see recurrence five years later with just? I think, again, it depends on the individual biology of that tumor. Those patients who have very large GIST and who have a high mitotic rate, one would probably expect to see recurrence within the first year or two. This particular patient had a large tumor, but apparently had minimal mitoses, and her key 67 was barely positive, suggesting that this tumor was sort of conflicted. It was big enough, but it didn't have some of the other characteristics that would lead us to believe that this was going to have a particularly aggressive course. Now, the recurrence in the liver, liver only, So about half of these patients, when they do develop metastatic disease, the liver is a favored site, and they will only have liver disease, although that should be confirmed not just on CT, but perhaps even PET would probably be a good idea. You know, in terms of workup for liver metastasis, it's not that dissimilar even in the post-imatinib era to the pre era, and that is to evaluate the patient based on the volume of liver disease, the age of the patient, comorbidities, and so forth, and the anatomic location of these lesions to evaluate whether this patient might be a resectable candidate or not. In the pre era, resection of just liver metastasis was not particularly successful, and the long-term results resulted only in about 5 or 10% survival in those patients who are successfully resected. In the post-imatinib era, I'm sure that that has changed, and anecdotally in several institutional reports, it has changed. So in this case, considering this is metastatic disease, the workup would consist of, you know, the CT scans, a PET scan, and then consideration of, I think, systemic therapy initially. And then with very close watching by the surgeon and with the medical oncologist and to see when and if this patient could be successfully resected. Now, at the point that you presented her, was she considered surgically resectable by the surgeons? She was considered to be resectable, but there was a concern about the right lobe that is going to take the huge resection. So there was a recommendation about giving her neoadjuvant therapy first. So, Dr. Dimitri, there's a lot of controversy in colorectal cancer about this situation, specifically liver-only METs. Do you give pre-op systemic therapy? Do you give post-op? Do you give both? How do you approach that decision and just... 
I think it's pretty standard consensus across the world that we would start with systemic drugs with the idea that surgery may actually play a role. So it's the opposite of what we often think, that surgery is the primary modality. In this case, drug therapy is the primary modality. But then the fact that drugs on median will fail after a couple of years have given us the hope that perhaps the multimodality therapy of managing this form of sarcoma, after all, just is a form of sarcoma, and we're used to multimodality interaction managing other types of sarcomas. So starting with drugs, trying to get some control of the disease, and then considering surgery later to try to prevent the emergence of resistant clones that are probably hiding in those bulk lumps. One thing we've come to realize with collaboration from people like John Trent and Chris Corliss, Mike Heinrich up in Oregon, is that even if you take one lump that's about three centimeters and sample different corners of that lump, you may see the seeds of resistance brewing because there are different secondary mutations even in a single lump, let alone within a single patient in different lumps in the same patient. What's the thinking, if you have a situation where the surgeon says, you know, I can resect this, what's the thinking about using systemic therapy at that point, as opposed to just taking it out and then using sort of adjuvant afterwards? Well, the advantage is similar to the way we think about use of chemotherapy and osteosarcoma. You start with the drugs, and then you're able to see that the tumor is not rapidly blowing through those drugs, or that drug, imatinib in this case, because if the tumor were to progress through imatinib, maybe you wouldn't do the patient such a good benefit by moving right to surgery because there's almost certainly, even after the best possible surgical resection, there will be other cells left behind. So by starting with the drug, realizing that you're getting control, then doing the surgery, and then all importantly, continuing the drug after that, because that was what we've learned from the French discontinuation studies. That's the kind of patient that if you were to render the patient with metastatic disease, surgically disease-free, the patient still has microscopic disease somewhere and would have to take imatinib lifelong. And what duration of preoperative therapy do you utilize? How do you decide what the duration is? We flip a coin. Um, Seriously, though, we don't know. Nobody really knows. The median time to optimal response is about four to six months, but there have been patients who actually shrink their tumors after a year. So we literally negotiate with the patient, what's good for you? Does that fall on, you know, Christmas or is there a big holiday coming up? We literally, when we time these sorts of resections, we use that sort of personal timing factor. Dr. Eisenberg, any particular pitfalls in this type of surgery? You were talking before about how the tumor is more friable, spilling, et cetera. What about in the liver, hepatic resections? Yeah, one of the advantages that at least we found in treating these patients systemically first is obviously you have sort of an in vivo tumor model so you can see if the drug is working, which helps promote post-surgical drug. But also the effect on the tumor is fairly dramatic in terms of sort of a degenerative change that makes it much less vascular. And the surgery actually is easier. I'm following a patient right now who presented with a primary gastric and metastatic tumor in the liver. The tumor, unfortunately, was very central. It was about three centimeters, and it was sort of right at the junction of the right and left hepatic vein, making it a little bit more problematic for a segmental resection. With systemic therapy, that tumor is pulling away from that area now. It's gone from about three centimeters to about one and a half centimeters. And now I'm getting rather excited about taking this thing out, whereas before I was less enthused. Do you see sort of tumor response syndromes where patients have perforations and bleeds, et cetera, because of dramatic responses or not really? 
Yeah, we had a few of those early on in terms of big bulky tumors that were sort of connected to bowel and had already demonstrated ulcerative characteristics. And in terms of response, we had a few rather acute GI bleeds. I think that's probably less than about 5%, which is why it's so important to sort of get together when these patients go into therapy the first time around and follow them very closely. I mean, even following them on therapy with the idea that this is some sort of neoadjuvant treatment, I think these patients ought to be seen fairly frequently, and their scans probably ought to be done about every two months or so, and to figure out sort of where you are in the life cycle of this tumor. We've routinely looked at a 6- to 12-month time frame as ideal for these patients to consider surgery. What about non-operative interventions like radiofrequency ablation? Yeah, we've used that too. It depends on the number of metastatic sites. RFA is useful in the situation where you may have multiple lesions that are stable, but one is progressing. And rather than operate on that patient, if you're of the mind that you can change the course of their disease by treating the one lesion, most of the time, depending on the size, it's reasonably easy to do a percutaneous RFA or a laparoscopic RFA rather than to subject the patient to a full laparotomy. Can you talk about what happened? Yeah, so she had a PET scan done initially, and the PET scan was only positive in the liver lesion. So she was treated with the Glivac, 400 milligram daily, and after eight weeks, she had repeated CT scan show decrease of the liver lesion by 50%, and the PET scan at that time was negative in both lesions. So the surgeon took the lesions out. They had good resection, negative margin. Subsequently, the patient was very active in terms of information about the Glivac, and she ended up taking Glivac for a year, but because of the significant fatigue and the lower extremity swelling and the weight gain, she opted to stop the therapy. But now, 18 months later, she's still having no evidence of disease. So, Dr. Dimitri, she comes back to you and says, do you think, you know, now I'm thinking about it and I've been reading about it, and should I consider starting it up again? Maybe I can live with the edema and the fatigue. Yeah, I would support that. I always get nervous with people like this off imatinib, and again, tailoring the dose to a patient sometimes is possible with appropriate use of diuretics. Frankly, although we try not to go down to 300 milligrams a day, and we never go lower than 300 milligrams a day, you know, I might feel more comfortable with 300 than nothing. So this is one where some level of individualization for the patient would seem to make sense. My question for Dr. Eisenberg, you alluded to the initial workup. Does one do a CAT scan and a PET scan, or both, or either? Well, yeah, there are advantages and disadvantages of both, and that's sort of a complicated issue. But basically, if one is going to do a PET scan, and you're going to use that as a measure of drug success, you need to have a baseline scan. I've had a couple of patients come in, never had a PET scan before, they're already on therapy, and somebody orders a PET scan. The PET scan's cold. I don't know what that means. You know, I'm not sure what that means. So most of these tumors are PET avid, but I've seen a few primary gist that are PET negative. So if that is a criteria of response, you sort of have to have a baseline scan. I don't think you need to use a PET scan every two months. I think that would, for one, I don't know if any insurance company would pay for that. We even have trouble getting them to pay for the baseline PET scan. But it's reasonable to get one PET scan. We finished up a neoadjuvant trial in mid-2006 where there was a requirement for PET scans. 
And what we did was they had a baseline, they had another PET scan in the sort of the interim drug, about four to six weeks post-drug, and then they had one more PET scan prior to go into the operating room. That was part of a clinical study, and those scans were paid for by the NIH. But in practice, I think if you're going to do PET, probably one PET to establish response is probably reasonable in that setting. How often does PET add something to CT? I think it'll add something, particularly in those patients where the CT is questionable. I've had a few where, you know, we're trying to evaluate whether the patient has more disease than is obvious, and we see something on CT, and it's not absolute. There's some question from the radiologist. I think in that case, a PET scan might be valuable. I don't think that it has, and I don't know what George or Jonathan think, but I'm not sure it has absolute value in every patient that we see. I think it should be used selectively. Did the surgeon say anything about what the tumor was like at surgery? Was it, you know, friable and necrotic? Or? No. I've heard there are density changes on CT and responding gists that the size may not change and by resist criteria, but, you know, if they're responding, there's a lot of density changes and other things like that, so you can get fooled on CTs. That's true, exactly. Particularly with liver lesions, but also peritoneal implants, the tumor prior to institution of imatinib or sunitinib for that matter, the tumor will be vascular and will take up IV contrast, oftentimes at the same rate as the liver. So they can be a mass and the liver can be isodense with the liver. And then after institution of imatinib therapy, the response can be so brisk that tumor cells die and rupture and blood vessels collapse. And if you do another CAT scan after six to eight weeks, that tumor is no longer taking up IV contrast. And in fact, in surgical specimens that we've looked at, it's difficult to find blood vessels. It's difficult to find tumor cells for that matter. And what's left is this proteinaceous material called myxoid degeneration. And when you look at it on a CAT scan, it can be the same density as the gallbladder, for instance, or the bladder. So it can be water density, despite the fact that the tumor has not changed in size. And in extreme cases, maybe as high as 5%, 5 to 10% of cases, a tumor may actually increase in size some. And there may be some concern that the tumor is growing, when in fact the density has really decreased dramatically and the tumor's increased size possibly due to just an interstitial pressure within the tumor or perhaps due to hemorrhage within the tumor or other unknown causes. So it's a fairly common phenomena to see this decrease in density and sometimes without a decrease in size or even with an increase in size. And that's why the initial resist response rates really underestimated the benefit that patients were getting. In the initial reports, response rates were 40 to 70%. If you look at complete response plus partial response plus stable disease, that added up to 90%. And as it turns out, stable disease by resist is identical to partial response in overall survival. So it all correlates well and makes clinical sense that this density change is important.
And I think that's been seen in other diseases right now, too, that are treated with kinase inhibitors. So we see that with kidney cancer treated with kinase inhibitors. So this seems to be a theme that tumors don't need to shrink to respond. That was novel. People thought we were wild-eyed enthusiasts when we were saying that back in 2001. But it's now been played out in a totally different disease area, and we think just proved that point early on. The so-called Choi criteria, named after an MD Anderson radiologist named Hasten Choi, really do this very well. They try to note that in first-line GIST treatment, saying that if you have the density change, you don't have to shrink your tumor for that to be considered a response. Functionally, what it does, it turns stable disease into a responding category, which is appropriate in this disease. This will take me to the question, so what's the definition of GIST resistant to Gleevec? For example, in CML, we have definition in terms of the patient resistant to Gleevec based on hematologic response, cytogenetic, or molecular what about GIST? When do you consider the patient resistant to Gleevec? Because especially now we have second option or alternative, which is sunitinib. Well, I actually think we're pretty good and pretty accurate about calling progression. The resist has been decent at calling progression appropriately. The times when resist fails is the relatively unusual case when a tumor is totally cystic and may have bled into itself and got a lot bigger but usually there's other criteria that are not so subtle to a good clinician, like the hematocrit dropped 20 points and something obvious happened to the patient. So you can detect those situations. But if a patient's tumor is getting bigger by 20% and it's somewhat solid and the patient's still having pain, again, the clinical findings in these patients are not trivial, that's progression by anybody's call. The two different kinds of progression that have been I think standard in the literature now are primary progression, people who never respond to imatinib. So that progression happens within the first six months. Or secondary progression, so people who get some benefit, let's say for six months or eight months or 12 or two years, and then later will have growth of their disease and progression of their disease. So either of those represent progression. What about PET scan? change in PET scan, no change in PET that, scan. That, I think, is where PET can be very useful. If somebody's clearly growing with solid masses and they're very symptomatic, you don't necessarily need a PET. But the patients on the margin where you have a mixed density, and I think it's not hit the literature so that just how common it is to see this mixed density of some necrosis, some myxoid degeneration, a lot of glop in there that's solid. Is that progression? Is that bleeding in the tumor? What's going on? That's where PET has been most valuable in our practice. We don't think you really need it because, again, in our opinion, symptoms on top of radiology are really helpful. That can help us define progression. PET adds a level of objectivity to that as well. John, what do you think about that? There's another comment about progression, and that's when, for instance, your patient is treated and these liver lesions become cystic and hypodense and don't take up IV contrast. And then over a median of two years, the patient is going to develop progression. And so that progression may take the form of limited progression, for instance, only one of those may fill in with tumor and then start enlarging. The other one may not. Or, on the other hand, the patient may develop widespread or generalized progression. And in that setting, your patient's two liver lesions may fill up with tumor and start enlarging, and you may find that there are 20 intraperitoneal implants all growing at the same time. And it's not just a theoretic difference in progression, but it also has clinical ramifications, because if you only have one of the two 
that's enlarging and now vascular and taking up contrast and growing, you may want to treat that one surgically or with RFA or with hepatic artery embolization and then leave the patient on a matinib to continue to treat the other lesion or the other lesions that you can't see yet. So that's another way to think about progression. And we've gotten so sensitized to this that we've also identified essentially preclinical progression in patients where you can have these cystic lumps where after, let's say, a year and a half, two years, they start to fill in in one little corner as if somebody seeded that lump with a little resistant clone, and that's exactly what happens. You see a little nodule appearing in the bigger nodule that's all burned out, myxoid degeneration, it's of no bother to the patient. It totally upsets us because we can see what's going to happen in the future. And what we've tried to do is, A, explain that to the patient. B, consider changing our scan frequency. Maybe instead of scanning every six months, that patient might want to be scanned every three months. Or C, do that in addition to changing the dose of the drug. That may be where we can possibly slow down progression by changing the dose. If the patient's tolerating 400 well, they might want to go to 600 or 800 to try to prevent progression. We generally don't change drugs totally for that sort of preclinical, very limited nodular progression unless it's truly more bulky. There was one other phenomenon that I think might be important in a fairly limited group of patients with liver metastasis, and that is the patient who has the original CT scan that may not be very well contrast enhanced. And so the lesions are in the liver, clearly in the liver, but not very well defined or demarcated. They respond, they become isodense, and suddenly you can see them better. And I've had one patient like that where clearly the lesions became much easier to see on the CT scan, and the radiologist looked at it and said, this patient's progressing. Couldn't see it very well before. I could see it really well now. It must be progressive disease, and in matter of fact, that was responsive disease. 